So hello and welcome to the Cadre Journal. Today we're going to be talking about Andre Gunder Frank. And just to begin with a short introduction to his life, Andre Gunder Frank was born Andreas Frank in Berlin, and he his family left at a very early age to escape the Nazis. Um, he moved to the United States and then was educated there. His name was uh, Andreas Frank, and he had the name Gunder added as sort of a joke, an inside joke among his high school. Uh, the name Gunder was the name of a, a Swedish uh, pro runner or track athlete. And the joke was that Andre Gunder Frank was not very fast. So he was nicknamed with the, the nickname of Gunder and he just kind of added it into his name over time. Uh, he attended Swarthmore College and then he had his PhD at the University of Chicago where his dissertation advisor was none other than Milton Friedman uh, who he would later on of course, kind of engage with in, in a different capacity, a very critical capacity, but he rejected the kind of monetarist thinking of Milton Friedman. And as he was sort of getting into his dependency theory and, and economic thinking, he had some moments that really changed his viewpoint. And one of them was in 1960, where he visited Cuba and Che Guevara personally wrote to him and asked for help to transform Cuba's dependent economy. He then toured other parts of the world, including Ghana and Guinea in Africa, and spent the rest of the 1960s living in Latin America, primarily in Brazil, Mexico, and Chile, and analyzing their underdevelopment. Uh, at the University of Brasilia, he taught some students, including uh, Teotonio dos Santos and Roy Maromarini, who later on became dependency theorists in their own right. Then later on, uh, he engaged in some criticisms and polemics with Fernando Enrique Cardoso, who he had first had a relationship with and a friendship with, and later on would, would criticize heavily. Then he went to Santiago in Chile, and in the early 1970s, he was very affiliated with the Allende government. Uh, he was working with them and helping to develop economic policy for them. Uh, when the military coup occurred in 1973, uh, and Chile became a run by the Chicago Boys and Milton Friedman. Uh, ironically, Andre Gunder Frank was exiled by his former dissertation advisor and forced to leave as the coup was unfolding and the junta came to power under Pinochet. He spent the rest of his life in exile, primarily in Germany, uh, would later return to Chile uh, and then died in the early 2000s. Um, and one other thing we can add is that he was very heavily affiliated with uh, the other group of dependency theorists, world system theorists, uh, known as the Gang of Four. So he had a relationship with Samir Amin, Giovanni Arrighi, and Emmanuel Wallerstein, who were the other three main thinkers. And they very heavily shaped his thinking on many subjects in his uh, polemics and, and engagements with them. So I think that's a good place to jump into it and say, and talk about the two uh, articles that we read. The first uh, being the development of underdevelopment uh, from 1967, I believe, and then the next uh, world, it was world accumulation uh, from 1978. Um, so I think we can start there. And maybe before we even go into that, uh, Sam, we've had you on the Cardio Journal before. I don't know if you want to just give a, a quick hello and kind of maybe say a little bit about what you thought about these two pieces. Well, sure. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Samuel Spellman. Uh, I'm a Brazilian professor of international relations. 
And I'm also very dedicated to the reading of uh, world systems theory and the whole issues of reproduction of capital on a world scale. I'm also uh, an, an author uh, of one or two papers about China. Uh, I'm, actually, China is my main uh, field of work, right? Uh, which, well, this experience of analyzing Gunder, Gunder Frank's work will be very valuable to me because even though it's very interesting to, to think about this because even though um, I am Brazilian, but my main field of work, it's not the, the Latin American economy. And so uh, these are readings that I, I eventually I fall into, but they are very lateral to my own, uh, on my own readings because well, I'm, I'm analyzing the contemporary issues regarding China and not the 1960s and 70s debates about the, the whole underdevelopment of, the, of Latin America. But they're all very connected. So uh, it's, it's very interesting how you eventually, are, you, you feel yourself guided back to this, uh, this literature. And so this is a very, very good experience for me. Uh, well, I'd like to thank you both, Joseph and Marek, for asking me uh, again to, to join you on your show. Yeah, thanks so much. And it's always a pleasure to have you. And I think from having read your writings on imperialism, definitely it stands out that, you know, we can always apply these debates going back to Lenin and Luxembourg and all the different theorists. And even when we, Marek and I, have been revisiting dependency theory and seeing how it kind of Released in the modern day, because it you can maybe say that it's having a bit of a, a resurrection, or more and more people are revisiting these debates and discussions as there's been a. I think in reading this by Gunder Frank, we see the reason that people are so uh, fascinated by it and increasingly fascinated by it is a kind of feeling that he's been proven right in a lot of his assertions that underdevelopment, you know, is a continuing process and, and one that is a direct result of capitalism. Um, Merrick, do you want to kind of start off with some of your thoughts, or maybe we can move into talking about the text? Um, yeah, I can just say a couple things. Um, I, I think, uh, for one thing, I think it was interesting that Andre Gunder Frank actually was uh, a professor at one point at the institution that I'm at right now, uh, Florida International University. Um, and I think that his kind of, he had a very international point of view in terms of how capitalism operated and how imperialism operated. Um, and so he really, I, I think like reading through his works, you can really see that close um, eye towards the kind of flow of capital and the way that capital flows between people and between groups and between areas, um, like beyond just a nation and beyond just a state, they flow literally between like the exchange of individuals um and i like that's one of those things that i think about as i read through the other parts of his work um but yeah we can get right into any questions we have yeah so i'd like to kick it off with talking about kind of how he organizes the first piece his arguably his most famous piece uh the development of underdevelopment to begin, maybe I can just go through a few of the quotes that stood out to me, and then we can kind of reflect on, on what he means by them. But even on the first page, we're sort of confronted with his motivation for why he's written this. He says, more important, our ignorance of the underdeveloped country's history leads us to assume that their past and indeed their present resembles earlier stages of the history of the now developed countries. 
So he's sort of dealing with, this isn't just a discussion with respect to dependency theory about economic development, but it's also really part of the, the way we view underdeveloped countries as uh, strange and, and sort of antiquated and, and not having a internal motivation to develop properly. He says that most of our theory fails to explain the structure and development of the capitalist system as a whole and to account for its simultaneous generation of underdevelopment in some of its parts and of economic development in others. So again, a kind of dialectics of dependence, of course, as Marini would put it later on, but the fact that development and underdevelopment occur simultaneously and that one is a cause of the other. The development of the metropolis, as he calls it, is the result of the underdevelopment of the colonies or of the satellite, as he puts it. And then as he, as he says, the economic development occurs in a succession of capitalist stages and that today's underdeveloped countries are still in a stage, sometimes depicted as an original stage of history through which the now developed countries passed long ago. I think he's getting into the, the way in which the sort of modernization theorists were viewing economic development, that underdeveloped countries can develop, they just have to follow the path of England or of the United States. And the fact that they haven't done it is, as he, as he points out, uh, a result of different traditions or a result of uh, the political or social or cultural characteristics of these societies, rather than the fact of their deliberate intentional underdevelopment by the, the metropole or by the core states. So maybe we can just take that little intro part that he'd begun with and reflect on the necessary nature of what he's saying there and the kind of way in which he starts it off by saying, we're thinking about development wrong. We're thinking about development as a process that's universal, that everybody can follow. But in reality, underdevelopment is a policy decision made by, and it's actually not even just that, that underdevelopment is just a choice, but it's also the way capitalism came about is through a deliberate process of underdevelopment. Well, absolutely. Uh... There are two points, there are, there are, there are two uh, very interesting debates he, he engages uh, right on in, he, in this paper. I guess the, the first one is just, just the one you, you pointed out, it's the, it's the whole issue about how do we explain on the, the issue of underdevelopment. To, to Gunder Frank, it's not, it's not about uh, the, the stages debate. It's, it's the, the debates on which stages do you have to follow up in order to develop. So he, he both engages the modernization answer, which is the, well, you have to build the necessary structures and you have to go through, through certain stages of development in, in order to, to reach, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe the level of richness you, you experience in Europe or in the United States. This is one answer he engages you, but there is another one, which is the liberal answer to all of this, which I found very interesting in this paper because he is dating the, the liberal answer as well to the 1960s. Uh, well, the liberal answer is that you have to build institutions. You have to create the necessary mechanisms through institutional development in order to, well, for your own development. So you have to create a democracy. You have to create... Uh, Western liberalism, and you have to to engage with it, and obviously we engage with uh, free markets as well. But this is the 1960s still. This is way before uh, well, what what we understand as new liberalism. So so he's engaging with this debate 
uh, well, uh, actually, I guess you you uh, answered you answered Joseph in your presentation why he is already engaging with this debate because these people were already there, right? So he was a student at the, in the University of Chicago, right? So that's about it. The, these authors were already writing uh, what became the liberal agenda of the 1970s and 80s way before. So obviously, uh, he he's already answering to it. But there is another debate right there, which is, uh, let, let me see. The other debate is how do we deal with history? This is a, a debate, this is an answer that he puts in this paper, but also in the introduction to the 1978 book, we, which we read, the, well, we read in the, the preface and the conclusions, world accumulation. Uh, with the debate on history is very interesting because, well, how do you tell history? Do you tell it uh, com by comparing uh, different institutions that happen at the same time? Well, um, um, while comparing institutions that, that exist on different nations at different times? Or do you tell it as it goes? Do you tell it in, at understanding its contemporary issues? Big, well, Gunder Frank's answer is that you should tell it uh, uh, looking at the, the present time always. So you so through that you understand that capitalism affects the whole globe at all points all the time, uh, obviously in different ways. At an ev evolutionary pace, we will get to, to this debate. Uh, I guess a little bit for uh, later about how does capitalism affects the, the deaths of Africa and, and Asia at a certain point and in different ways, et cetera. But these are very different answers. He, he actually uh, debates um, Anderson uh, right on this topic because well, you, can, you can get very ahistorical uh, when answering this. Can just you know start comparing uh, Argentina from the 1990s to I don't know a process that Brazil experienced just a decade later. So these are different issues, and he proposes an answer to all of us. That that this is very interesting that paper. Yeah, and I wanted to mention, I, I think Samuel made a good point about the about how Gunder Frank looks at history, uh, and kind of how he. He sees the process of like analyzing history and, and deriving uh, kind of like the modern situation from the historical situation. Something that we have to mention is that in these time period when Gunder Frank was the most prevalent in his writing in the 60s and the 70s, this was really the height of um, Latin American nations thinking about what development is going to look like and thinking about what kind of policies need to be enacted for us to push forward in a way of like dismantling themselves from uh, the dependency, but really they, they've pushed, they push themselves back. And what I'm referring to specifically is the uh, import substitution that a lot of uh, military governments ended up, uh, the policy that a lot of military governments in Latin America ended up following. Uh, in Peru, for example, um, there, Juan Velasco, who led the military government in Peru for a, a number of years, 
he wanted to make sure that the Peruvian, uh, the materials of Peru, copper and gold and things like that, were the product and the for the purpose of Peruvian people, including the land. Um, there was land redistribution and things like this, and there was a big question around what does it mean to dismantle yourself from dependency? And I think part of Gundefrink's uh, analysis and, and critique is that just one country cannot take themselves away from dependency and that dependency is really an issue of the entire world. And that if maybe one country will change its internal conditions, that doesn't mean that its external conditions will change. So they will still have to compete on the international scale. So when Peruvian silver uh, is declining, that means Argentinian and Bolivian silver can, can rise up. And I think that's something we have to think about as we kind of go through the kind of key points that Gunder Frank is making throughout both world accumulation and the 1966 paper. Those are excellent points. And I, I just want to point to even still in the first section, he's engaging with this debate where he says, uh, evident inequalities of income and difference in culture have led many observers to see dual societies and economies in the underdeveloped countries. So he's reflecting on the fact that people often say, well, even within these countries, there is, you know, there's a core and a periphery, there's a, a, a metropole and uh, a satellite as well, even within, like take Ar Argentina with Buenos Aires and then the rest of the country being the satellite around that metropole. But he says that to just think of it as that way, that it's within countries rather than on a global scale is false. And he says, I believe on the contrary, that the entire dual society thesis is false and that the policy recommendations to which it leads will, if acted upon, serve only to intensify and perpetuate the conditions of underdevelopment. And as, a, as an alternative to that, he suggests, just like Merrick, you said, I'm confident that future historical research will confirm that the expansion of the capitalist system over the past centuries effectively and entirely penetrated even the apparently most isolated sectors of the underdeveloped world. So this is something that Wallerstein would get into later, but the kind of the world system theory that this is a capitalism has penetrated every part of the world. And we can't just think of the metropolis and the satellite within one country, but there are, there are metropoles of entire countries or of the global north and a satellite of entire countries in the global south. And with that, I think it's, it's also important to talk about some of the terminology he's using. So the kind of arrangement within, you know, rather than even just thinking on, a, on an individual level of, you know, uh, a proletariat and a bourgeoisie, he's almost taking it at a, at a global scale to think about what is the relationship of domination and dependence between individual countries. And he uses this terminology of the satellization of countries that over the course of their existence, they can be drawn closer and closer into engagement with the, the imperial core and that that dependency of exporting raw materials to them can lead to their complete underdevelopment by design. In the process, I'll just add that he comes up with a few theses that he proposes throughout the piece that are all really, really interesting to reflect on. So the first one, he says, in contrast to the development of the world metropolis, which is no one's satellite, the development of the national and other subordinate metropoles is limited by their satellite status. It is perhaps more difficult to test this hypothesis than the following ones, because part of its confirmation depends on the test of the other hypotheses. Then he says the satellites experience their greatest economic development and especially their most classically capitalist industrial development, if and when their ties to the metropolis are weakest, 
And on the flip side, he says, the, uh, the metropolis satellite structure is that the regions which are the most underdeveloped and feudal seeming today are the ones which had the closest ties to the metropolis in the past. And throughout the piece, he talks, he talks some examples of that. So he says, compare Paraguay, which had its endogenous, uh, somewhat autarkic development ruined by the war of the Triple Alliance and compare that to a country that was very tied in with the world economy like Argentina, which was Britain's puppet state immediately after independence. You can see how Paraguay was developing faster and Britain had to use its, its puppet states of Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay to attack and destroy the project there. And so he's kind of reflecting on the fact that when the Imperial core global North countries withdraw from their engagement with these countries, it allows them the room and space to develop independently. Just as you were saying, Rick, the kind of thing that later Samir Amin would talk about delinking as a, a potential for these countries to remove themselves from dependency and, and in that process, remove themselves from the global economic project of the imperial core. That's, that's a very good debate he's engaging in because uh, what was what people used to think was that they still think this that uh, well through engagement with the uh, not only through engagement with the north but looking at the past when when you when you under try to when you try to understand the the process of certain regions of especially Latin America well we have certain regions that were left that were that eventually were underdeveloped, that they eventually became underdeveloped, but in the past they were very rich. Uh, he he pu puts up uh, some examples for that, right? He actually talks the, about my specific region of Brazil, which is the northeast, northwest of Brazil. Uh, and while here it's very interesting when you go to a big city, you know, a very traditional city, uh, which was to be a capital, well, you can all look up Recife, Recife in Northeast. Uh, actually, uh, for, for a brief period of time, Recife was a capital of a nation because we declared independence from, uh, from Portugal back in 1817. But the, when you go to the city and you look at the old part of town, which was very explored and very interconnected to the, to the Netherlands, uh, during the Netherlands colonization of Brazil, which was very brief. It was maybe four years. But during this period of time, the, the, they built Recife, and Recife became very rich. And the whole thing is that when you go to, to, the, to this specific part of time, you can uh, perceive capital in a very different way, because the city is very, it became very poor later on. But when you look at that, it, it resembles Venice, from it, Venice in Italy. The, the the whole issue around rivers, the whole uh, movement of peoples, but also the the wealth. You can see the wealth. For, you can see capital through wealth there. But so what does uh, Gunder Frank proposes us to explain how Recife became poor? He proposes that, well, it became poor because it engaged so much for a certain period of time, but then it was abandoned. It, 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 its economic cycle ended, and then this ending, it it had already developed a lot of uh, the capitalist structures. It it had to develop, so it it was left behind. But in this leaving behind, it should be underdeveloped because it, it cannot be non-capital. It cannot go to the past. It 
cannot return to being non-capital. So it is reinserted into world capitalism in an underdeveloped way. This is very different from regions which ne never touched capital at, at, or, or touched it, but very laterally, as Paraguay's uh, example, Joseph just told us. Uh, for, for everyone who, who's not South American, Paraguay is very isolated if you if you'd not go there through a river. The, the same can be said about certain parts of, uh, of Bolivia and certain parts of Brazil. So because of the Amazon, of course, but uh, and then they just develop a whole industry out of that. So how, how, what, what does that say tells us about capital? Right. And this can be seen all over the world. You, 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 we're obviously we're talking about South America here because that's what, uh, as Mark said, what Gunder Frank's issue is, right? But it goes way beyond that. We can actually go into China. We will definitely go into China and then in another week. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of geography that. Samuel was talking about. Gunder Frank talks about geography a lot um, in his writing because uh, in his discussion uh, or in his book, uh, uh, Capitalism and Underdevelopment in, Under in Latin America, when in his specific uh, essay on Chile, he describes the relationship between Santiago, which is the capital of Chile, and Lima, which is the capital of Peru, and the kind of back and forth that both of these places would have in the Spanish uh, colonial system as the main port for Spanish uh, uh, trade on the western side of South America. And so because of their connection to Madrid and to the crown, they would change. Uh, one would become more prevalent and have a closer connection. And like if there was a lot of gold or silver, you know, Peru would go. And then later when it was more uh, wheat and like agricultural products. It would change to Chile and the two would go back and forth. And a lot of it has to do with geography. Um, Santiago is a little bit closer to uh, Spain in terms of a boat route. So if you literally take a boat and the same thing is true with Recife in Brazil, where the northern part of Brazil is much easier to access for Europeans than the southern part of Brazil. But eventually the southern part of Brazil would become uh, richer based on its its relationship with uh, with Europe, uh, specifically with um, Britain. Gunder Frank talks a lot about the relationship with South America and Britain and how it fundamentally changed uh, the economy and the geography of Latin America from railroads and mining that the British capital pushed. It totally changed the demographics and the the political capital and the economic capital of the country. Um, and another thing I wanted to touch on uh, that Joseph talked about is it's not just about states. Uh, so how, just like how we can go, how Gunder Frank criticizes the fact that it's like a urban rural divide there. You can't make that only that's not, that's not the only issue in in underdevelopment or, or development theory. Um, but it's really the interaction between people and in world accumulation, he talks about how the exploitation of domestic workers, specifically like women and children who work in the family home, uh, you know, do 
the the work of a family you know like clean the house and teach and prepare children for uh you know school and to be productive parts of society this is a form of exploitation in itself and he, and he calls it um primary accumulation of a non-capitalist relationship or like a, a pre-capitalist relationship and so the exploitation of women is is one part of this larger system where their capital has to be exploited like you know their labor is free there's they have no you know monetary benefit for that work that is one of the foundational elements of the whole system of societies that we need a certain amount of workers to work and produce you know what is you know education is, is a form of production uh and so that education of children it is, is of in itself a form of exploitation and so those relationships both capitalist and non-capitalist extend throughout the world capitalist system between individuals between countries as well let me just get to get this point real, real quick because uh well we can extend that to, to his other to his uh development and other development paper and in his discussion which joseph introduced about uh about the dual uh, dual systems theory, right? Because what, what I'm trying to say is that, well, if you have, you can still have non-capitalist relations of exploitation under capitalism, but you, you but obviously these uh, relations of exploitation, these are non-capitalist, right? When you talked about the, the example of women, of the exploitation of women on the domestic, uh, on the domestic sphere, but we can also extend this argument into the, the integration of socialist countries, which he, he also puts in, the, in his book on in the circulation of capital on the world scale. Because, well, even though you have uh, relations that are mainly non-exploitative in socialist countries, they still end up integrating the circuit of capital in the, on the world scale as capital spreads. So you... Even though you're trying to the, separate yourself from capital, capital finds a way right into your home, right? Right into your bed, right into your country. This is very interesting because you have to, to think about these issues when you consider the linking. I guess we'll be, we'll be discussing the linking from Samir Amin another day, but this is a, a very important issue because this has to deal with the, the, the general theory of transition. How do you transition away from capital, right? Yeah, really good points. And I, I want to pick up on uh, especially something that was is interesting that Merrick was noting about the specific relationship of, of different metropoles within satellite countries uh, under the Spanish rule, but also in British rule as well. He has this excellent part on page 27 and 28 in development of the underdevelopment he talks about um, this hypothesis seems to be amply confirmed by the former super satellite development and present ultra underdevelopment of the once sugar exporting West Indies, Northeastern Brazil, and others whose names were made world famous centuries ago by their silver. And then this is, I think, the most interesting part where he says, there surely are no major regions in Latin America which are today more cursed by underdevelopment and poverty. Yet all of these regions like Bengal and India once provided the lifeblood of mercantile and industrial capitalist development in the metropolis. And that's part of his hypothesis that he posed earlier, where he said that the closer uh, a region is to the world capitalist system, the more likely it is to be underdeveloped. When I read this, I was thinking of 
over the summer when I was in South Africa going to mining regions where mines are most popular and they're most typically owned by British or American mining companies. And they're, as he says right there, the most underdeveloped, most impoverished. Uh, they have the most deep social suffering. And one would think that, you know, having spoken to people there when they say like we mine platinum out of the ground and it's shipped off to Europe, but the actual, you know, facilities around where people have to live are often, you know, the most uh, in dire conditions because of the direct underdevelopment caused by their proximity to these extractive industries. So I think that's another good point to kind of show what satellization looks like. These regions are actively satellized. And I, I think that leads to his, I would say, the coda or the kind of conclusion that he's coming to, which is to say this, these two lines, which are to me really powerful, that underdevelopment is not due to the survival of archaic institutions and the existence of capital shortage in regions that have remained isolated from the stream of world history. On the contrary, underdevelopment was and still is generated by the very same historical process, which also generated economic development, the development of capitalism itself. So we have to understand that as the silver, as this platinum is being extracted from the ground, it's deliberately underdeveloping these regions where it comes from, but it's very much used in the places that it's exported to, to build the capitalist system. And so anytime we talk, Merrick, as you were pointing out about exploitation, primitive accumulation occurring in Europe, it, that exploitation is all part of a process of the super exploitation and ultra underdevelopment of these regions that can fuel the development of capitalism as a system of, of wage exploitation and, and the selling of labor power in Europe as well. That's precisely the point I tried to, to make earlier about you cannot, when, when you understand that you can never go back, you, you have to understand that even though capital flees your country, that you're being underdeveloped by it. You, you can also, uh, you can't just go back into the, the previous mode of, of production. Your relations of production have already been changed. When you look at the, the history of Latin America, that, that's, that's even more grotesque. It, can, it can, can be compared to the, to the colonization of India in the sense that the, the genocide was so general during the early colonization of America that you just cannot rebuild everything back up. Even if you, if you eventually, well, I don't know, in a hypothetical world where you ex, uh, expelled the, the Europeans, you still were already affected by the, the whole issue. That of of the early integration, so well, what what's the answer so to to all of this? Because, well, the, the answer is that you should understand that in this underdevelopment, you have to create uh, a tactic for for your further development that that incorporates some degree of detachment from capitalism, but a planned detachment it cannot be just a random detachment and a, and a uh, a random rejection because, well, then you'll be just left with the, all the relations of production that you were already experiencing. Uh, I guess this may lead us to understand, to better understand the the whole issue of the isolation of Cuba, because when when you consider Cuba, Cuba was just uh, after the the revolution, but before the socialist transition. In, the, in those two years be, between 1960 and 1962, you know, Cuba was already uh, ejected from the capitalist world by the United States. 
even though Cuba was not not still implementing radical change, but well, they, they were being cut off, and in that cut off, the you know, the destruction unfolds because you would not have all the, that money coming coming in, and you have all this sugar that you have to get rid of, and the whole relations of production are already happening there, and if you do not continue to exp to export sugar, what what will the people do? What, right? What what will they work in? So you have to, to restructure the whole thing. A, a very similar issue may be happening if we consider Afghanistan today, because Afghanistan was just ejected from the, the American sphere. And well, what will happen to all those urban shops in Kabul? Well, what, what happens with Afghanistan when you hijack all of their foreign reserves, when you hijack all that dollar? Well, the, the, the even though we can, I don't know, hate Taliban, that, that's not the issue, but the issue is that when you uh, take all this value out of a country, capital in that country, as capital needs value, capital needs value in transition, capital needs value to go from A, from point A to point B. So it flows like a river. But if the river drains, there is no river there. So capital dies. And if capital dies, then a lot of problems unfold because people will have to get to get fed through capital. So they will need those factories. They will need that insulin. They will need, you know, they will need the, the production of food. But that's what happens when you are just uh, out of nowhere ejected from the capitalist world. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I went too astray in this argument, but I guess I got my point across, right? I I actually think that you made a really great point about kind of the, the chokehold that capital has, like, it's not enough to just say like, oh, we are going to eject ourselves from the capitalist system or, you know, create a socialist system. Uh, to me, I think Gunter Frank's writing is so important for us now um, to understand the importance of transition and the, the importance of, he talks about the, the transition from feudalism to capitalism um, and he talks about you know what what it, what that means for the future, and I think like the transition between capitalism and socialism now we're going to experience a lot of grief and a lot of suffering because that that kind of restructuring of the entire society and the restructuring of the entire system is going to create a lot of problems, as we see in, in Cuba, as we see in Venezuela, where they're trying to re. Uh, reorient themselves towards a system that is productive for their people rather than productive for capitalist forces, capital forces in Europe. Um, still, these countries are very heavily reliant on the sale of material goods, just like any other third world country. You know, Venezuela is reliant on the sale of oil, uh, just like, you know, Guyana or Trinidad, where they need oil sales to fuel their economies. And so, the transition between capitalism and socialism is not simply a, a, a saying or a slogan. It's really a, a movement. Uh, and just like how you say that you know, the river is flowing, the river will have steps. And so if we are going to change this river, if we're going to you know, create pools of life and not just like let ourselves get flown away by this river and forced by it, we have to build up structure slowly, you know, build a dam which creates the lake or, you know, let the the river uh, expand out into farmland you know this is like i'm going along with your idea you know it's a little bit uh you know 
far-fetched, but I, I think it still says a lot about, you know, what we're trying to do here. Because I think Gunderfrank makes a good point where there's two things at play. He talks a lot about in world accumulation, the internal uh, modes of production, modes of production, and the external forces which which change it. Um, and so each country will have to, each country, each community, each person will have to go through their own form of transition um, in order for them to realign themselves with the world system. And eventually, as those things slowly happen, then the whole world system itself will change. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm loving this uh, metaphor that we're running with of irrigation and the river. As Samuel said, it's a, it's a good allegory or illusion to use to talk about kind of the, the flow of life and socialism as kind of a, uh, a flowing river that is hypothetically heading towards something and flowing in a certain direction. But I wanna take even that, that metaphor and that discussion of transition and talk about uh, on page 22 of development of underdevelopment, he's, he begins to talk not about an example of socialist transition, but one of, of capitalist transition. And this is what I think gets under Gunder Frank in trouble with, you know, of course, with a lot of the modernization theorists, but he also with a lot of, you know, monetarists and whatnot, but even with, with socialists, it's kind of the question of transition. And he says, uh, you know, during the first world war, however, and even more during the great depression, the second world war, Sao Paulo began to build up an industrial establishment, which is the largest in Latin America today. The question arises whether this industrial development did or can break Brazil out of the cycle of satellite development and underdevelopment, which has char characterized its other regions and national history within the capitalist system so far. And I believe that the answer is no. And then he talks a little bit about the development of industry in Sao Paulo has not brought greater riches to the other regions of Brazil. Instead, it converted them into internal colonial satellites, decapitalized them further, and consolidated or even deepened their underdevelopment. So really interesting point to talk about in proposing solutions, of course, he's very critical of this modernization. We can just develop Sao Paulo, or we can just develop these cities to become like London or like Paris. But instead, as he's pointing out, that is deepening the inequality, it's deepening the underdevelopment of even the internal satellites. But even on a global scale, the view of, of developing one city within the global south or one region in a in a capitalist format or in a modernized format of just bringing it closer in line with the global north like buenos aires and like argentina did with brazil we see the kind of failure of that today and how argentina for a long time was very much just a, a puppet state of of britain and later on of the us of course so i wonder if we can talk a bit about this quote too of his view that of course he's saying you know 100 percent this process of industrial development did not work here. But of course, the question of what does work is left a little bit ambiguous to say socialist transition is a much more complicated question. And as you were pointing out, Samuel, the, the issue of capital just disappearing all of a sudden has to be kind of negotiated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let, let's get you to that uh, example he, he brings from Sao Paulo. Well, the, that is the absolutely true, you know, and the 1920s, the Sao Paulo experienced the, the early age of its industrial process, which would then uh, further deepen the 1930s, 40s, 60s. Uh, but he's, he's absolutely right. It does create inequality. It, it, uh, it starts, it, it does not serve the people. It serves capital. This transformation serves capital. 
there is another point right there when he uses the example of World War One, because these are points where uh, capital, especially the capital pressure, cannot manifest itself to its fully because it's a bit um, it's a bit occupied with wartime. So there is an opportunity during wartime for engagement, for change. There's an opportunity to, for change, not only uh, for socialist change, but also through capitalist change. You know, capitalist transforms itself to support the needs of the of, of basically for of capital. If the, the Brazilian capital was needing uh, industrialized products because Britain could not. Uh, could not export the same products over here because of the German uh, submarine fleet in the Atlantic, then we should develop them, these products. We, and we did develop these products, but it, it did not make the population richer. We just, we just learned to make new things. And the problem with that are basically two. The first one is that the population is not getting richer. It's, it's, we're just learning to, to build these new mesh machines, but the population is not getting richer. The second point is that it's the answer he puts when he talks about World War II. Right after World War II, the world market start to, started to restructure and to get right back into what it was before in the late 1940s, in the early 19, 1950s. And so, uh, well, even though we had a very good development and a very good industrialization process during the 1940s, during our separation from the world economy because of World War II, then the United States got right back into, into it and we were reintegrated and we were put into a new, uh, very unpleasant position because we had uh, you know, that, that kind of big, big capital. We had, uh, we had, uh, we, we were starting to produce oil fields. We were producing uh, heavy machinery and we were also producing very, uh, you know, small objects, you know, of uh, small industrialization. But the middle ground, the, the middle ground will, will be a very difficult issue because these products were, uh, especially luxury projects, products, you know, uh, um, jewelry and uh, Coca-Cola, you know, things that people actually care that only the wealth consume them, they were important to, uh, to Latin America. And this economic space was reserved to the United States. And if we dare to industrialize in this way, to get our profits from all the all the sectors of industry, then we are actually competing with the United States directly. And they will not let us compete. <laughs> they, they sure won't let us industrialize to our fully potential. So ca capitalism has these limitations. The, these are limitations that uh, actually China in the 1980s learned from our experience in, in Latin America and later said, well, no, we will have our own um, specifications in our industrialization process in order to avoid uh, falling into this trap as well. I think it was great to start talking about China because I, I wanted to bring up China as well because I think the development of China, uh, I, I think that, you know, if I, I, I think like what would Gunder Frank think now if he saw how China is in the world system 
and its its development since the 70s. I mean, it, it, it has had a, a massive change uh, economically. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, I think, debate over whether China is transitioning if they're like on this socialist path, which I, I believe they are. The There's a necessary, you know, reforming of the nation towards, you know, producing what is necessary, you know, to make sure that, uh, you know, everyone in China, their lives is improving, their lives are, are improving, you know, that the very basic material conditions are improving. And of course, there are so many barriers to that. There are so many, you know, structures which uh, oppose that development. But I, I mean, I don't know if one of you guys have, you know, a more deep thought or maybe something to say, but I think it's hard to really describe what's going on in China. Uh, like, you know, trying to take this this historical development that Gunder Frank has outlined and apply it to the Chinese model. And I know in a world accumulations, he's talked about it a little bit, but now, I mean, in the past 50 years, it, things have changed a lot. So like, how can we go from where he left off up until now? I think those are one of those questions that we have to you know, talk about more. Yeah, if I could just say on that, I think maybe that can be our last point of this, because I know later on we're going to talk about in a new episode later on of Andre Gunder Frank's writings on China, which I'm very excited to discuss. So maybe that can be our last point we touch on there and just and just hit on even in his conclusion, what he talks about, where he says uh, it, he has this last line and he says it's probably up to new generations of scientists from the underdeveloped countries themselves who most need to and best can devote the necessary attention to these problems and clarify the process of underdevelopment and development. It is their people who in the last analysis face the task of changing this no longer acceptable process and eliminating this miserable reality. It's a really profound conclusion where he says essentially like there has to be a solution to underdevelopment. We have to theorize it um, and it, it will take time, but the people of underdeveloped nations themselves will have to be the you know, on the forefront of theorizing the solution. So um, maybe, yeah, Samuel, I don't know if you want to kind of wrap up with some, we could talk about China for another hour, but I think uh, maybe we can conclude there and say, maybe like give us a little bit of a, a, a taste in advance of what we'll talk about later on in the China episode about like what his thoughts are on China. And even as an example of this, what he says in the conclusion of a country that has had a generation of people thinking about how to reverse this underdevelopment. He has a, I'm just gonna read it to you guys. This is uh, actually one of my favorite parts from both texts. It's in the early pages of the conclusion of his book on, on uh, world, world accumulation. It's, uh, it's this, it's his, re his reflection on history and how history, um, well, you should look at it not at the start of a process, not at the end of a process, but try to find the middle ground. And we are looking at the middle ground right, right now. Um, I have not answered all the questions that my readers will pose themselves at the end of this excessively long trip that I have imposed on them. But in history, the perfect book, the book that never again shall be written does not exist. On the contrary, history is a never changing interrogation of the past. And as much as it's must adapt itself to the necessities and sometimes anxieties of the present. History offers itself as a means for the, for the knowledge of men 
and not as an end in itself. Uh, he then goes on to say, right, right, that you should try to, to grasp uh, the meaning of history. Uh, it will first, it will always invite us to understand the present, but we, we, sh we should also uh, try to learn from the past in order to, to understand the present. And uh, what I found it most interesting was his, his, his invitation to understand the middle of the road, not to look at the far, far behind, the far, far past of the whole process. When we try to understand China, people usually try to understand it. And they start off by saying that it's 5,000 years old and all of that. And that's very interesting, but uh, in those 5,000 5, years old of history, there's also the, uh, the, the near history from all of us. The near history was the 1960s and 1970s and maybe 1980s. And we have to revisit these decades because well, first, because it's very fun. Well, reading this text was pretty, pretty fucking great, right? But also because uh, the answers to all of the, of the debates we try to engage today, the, the line in the past, they have been debated. You know, people have always been intelligent. So, of course, someone somewhere will say the exact same thing we're saying right now. And so uh, to try to understand China of today, uh, what's what actually convinced me that China was socialist in principle, at least, was that uh, was reading what the, they thought, was reading Deng Xiaoping, was reading uh, their own debates about, well, what, what we'll do with this country because we have certain problems and we have to, well, you know, we have to, <laughs> to find solutions to them. I mean, we have to find them, find solutions to them under a Marxist lens. They're trying to answer it. Um, my whole personal opinion about China, I will just give it, give it to them in the next episode because this, this one will be just too, too long. But, uh, well, this, that's, the, that's my own invitation, right? Read the classics, read the classics from 1960s, read the classics from 1910, I don't know. You have to, to, to try to give it a chance to, to them. That's the name of this podcast, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to, I mean, I, I think you made some really excellent points about, you know, I, I mean, Gunder Frank and you, you bringing it up really makes a good point, you know, going in, in the middle of history and, and the part about um, the perfect book is written, the, the final book that never needs to be written again. And one of my favorite quotes uh, from that last part of World Accumulations in the conclusion uh, is when he says, um, there's an unwritten library waiting expiration. And I feel like you know, this, even this podcast represents a part of that unwritten library. You know, it's the, the DVD in the back of the, of the library that someone will, will take off of the shelves, I think, um, because we're, we're trying to take what Andre Gundefrank was writing in the 60s and 70s, and we're repurposing it for our modern interpretation of what's going on, whether we're talking about China or like Samuel was talking about Afghanistan, the issue of dependency is still alive and well. And we need these thinkers to help us to understand the actual historical and contextual reason for why things are the way they are. Yeah, that's a really good point to end on. I think, uh, you know, in reading all of this and that kind of final line of saying that there's a, an entire library of stuff to be written, I really appreciate his, 
his note at the end there to say that the, the theorist will solve the problem of underdevelopment as he lays it out, which is so stark, so visceral, you know, very evocative, the language he uses to talk about the misery that underdevelopment of, from capitalism has caused. But he says very clearly, the literature, the solutions will come, but, you know, it's definitely a process of work and we need to kind of understand what we're up against. And I think his work is very clear in illuminating the fact that the problem is capitalism. It's not a mistake or, you know, antiquated traditions or backwardness as people used to refer to very clearly a deliberate process of underdevelopment by capitalism and imperialism. So thanks so much, Sam, for joining us. And uh, we'll have many episodes in the future talking about Andre Gunder Frank, his thoughts on China, delinking. We're very excited to kind of initiate the first in a series of uh, videos and discussions on dependency theory, which I think are going to be really exciting to continue. So yeah, thanks so much. Well, th thank you guys so much for inviting me again. Uh, I'm very glad to be here. And well, uh, let's go on on another day as well. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you.